Welcome to Sam Watches Star Trek, Monkey Off My Backlog's second weekly podcast, where one of us reacts to a TV show that the other has forced us to watch. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is Sam. Reporting live from what will be Tropical Storm Central very soon. As we await our fate from possible Tropical Storm Ian, possible Hurricane Ian, we are here to discuss the Star Trek Next Generation episodes, When the Bow Breaks, and Home Soil. Both episodes feature forms of life that are strange and alien to Picard. Children and non-organic aliens. Let's start with When the Bow Breaks, which is the 17th episode of the first season. The episode first aired on February 15th, 1988. It is the first episode written for the series by Hannah Louise Shearer and the only episode of the series with Kim Manners as a director. Also, Kim Manners. Yeah, also X-Files and Supernatural. Yep. Yeah, I thought you would appreciate that. Lots of X-Files energy on mm-hmm. this first. Mm-hmm. You know what? Well, what were you going to do? Before the X-Files, before we did spooky stuff. You had to do space stuff. I just never realized the connection between X-Files and this series. I mean, granted, I didn't watch X-Files when it came out, but it's been really interesting seeing all these directors and creators and actors who would later be in X-Files that they they kind of got their start here. There's definitely thematic similarities. Not Not too many, I don't think. I really I really don't think so. I mean, there's a lot different about this show from original series too. So I'm trying to think back to my limited memory of what network TV was like in the 80s. First of all, there was no Fox network. Kind of hard to have the X-Files without Fox because you can't spell Fox network without Fox Mulder. It's just, <laughs> it's just the way it is. Yeah, what I seem to remember about, you know, a lot of ampersands. Scarecrow and Mrs. King, Cagney and Lacey. There are more. Those are just the two I can think of. Remington and Steele. Nope, that's not right. <laughs> right? But 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 that's what it was. It was like like sexy crime solving shows. We would get LA Law at some point around there. Which is still not on streaming. L.A. Law is the show that I want to watch but can't. Because it stars Susan Day, who played Lori Partridge on The Partridge Family. Oh. Yeah. Stephen King makes her a centerpiece of his novel Insomnia for some reason. You you had situation comedies. Uh, I remember Highway to Heaven, the Michael Landon vehicle that isn't Little House on the Prairie. Or Bonanza. Or Bonanza. I remember, and I know some of these probably didn't come out till the early 90s, but I also remember Quantum Leap. Okay. Right? That's the first sci-fi show you've mentioned of that list. Well, there's a reason for that. Network TV was definitely not, not great outside of the world of sitcoms. You know, we, we talk about... TV dramas that were prime time in the 80s every once and again. L.A. Law gets brought up frequently. As I said, whenever you have a law show, it gets brought up, which is weird because nobody can see it now. You have, I mean, Highway to Heaven got essentially recycled as Touched by an Angel. I watched that show. Yeah. I was a child. And then Remington Steele is famously what allowed Timothy Dalton to get hired as James Bond because they wouldn't let the Broccoli's have Pierce Brosnan. 
So, I mean, like Falcon Crest, that's another show. The Equalizer, which they rebooted with Queen Latifah. Yeah. So, yeah, Quantum Leap is the only, and there were others, obviously. But that's the only one I can think of. So, genre fair just isn't ready for primetime, which I think we knew back in the original series days. Now that I've gone on and on and on about everything I remember, probably name, I'll probably yell out a random show <laughs> at some point later in the episode. So, I just think that that's interesting that this is obviously one of the only sci fi television thing that's happening. So, right. you're right. It makes sense that these directors would then go on to make the sci-fi shows in the 90s. The X-Files, not only was the X-Files really the only place that was doing sci-fi or horror, or basically genre things, the X-Files, as successful as it was, opened the doors for all the genre TV that we see now. I mean, there'd be no Lost without X-Files. Right, or Supernatural. Well, yeah, definitely not Supernatural. It was on the CW, so that's pretty close to not network anyway, though. I, again, never realized the overlap between the two. Not that I was paying attention to directors and a lot of actors' names when I was watching these as a teenager originally. Well, actually, no, I watched these as a child. I was not paying attention to them as a child. Anyway, let's start with When the Bow Breaks. The Enterprise is lured to the Epsilon Minos system by strange energy readings only to find the legendary missing planet of Aldea. The Aldeans seem technologically advanced and utopian, even by Federation standards, but their culture is dying. They desperately need children, and they are willing to kidnap from the Enterprise in order to obtain them. Sam, what were your first thoughts on this episode? Hardcastle and McCormick. That's the other Ampersand show. I knew I'd remember. Anyway, what are we talking about, Star Trek? <laughs> it's hard, really, to talk about the Aldeans with a straight face and not talk about Jason Aldean and his wife and the discourse. If you haven't looked that up, look it up. Have a good time. Clip ins. Anyway, this was fun. This was a good, they were both pretty good apps. You can't have place based utopias. Well, right. We know this. Yeah. We know this. So if anybody says, hey, I have a utopia for you to visit, it's time to Admiral Akbar this to bring on Star Wars, right? It is, in fact, a trap every single time. Clearly, we're relying. In fact, I think Atlantis gets name checked in the episode. But on this idea of this ancient society that's like more was more technologically advanced than anyone else at its time that disappeared that was utopian before it disappeared. And what we get is like kind of the remnants of this ancient greater society, which I think is very interesting. Like these people are living in the ruins. This reminds me of that episode from the original series with the with the ship that's just hurtling to the new. Um, you remember? I love this the title. The World is Hollow, It's in My Kiss by the band X. For the world is hollow and I have touched the sky. By Fallout Boy. One of the <laughs> one of the best name titles of Star Trek. Right. And all I got was this t-shirt. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I mean, this is kind of the same thing, right? Kind of, yeah. Because yeah. They, they also have a computer that runs their society, much like the Aldeans. They have the custodian that runs their society. 
but they no longer know how to use the tech that they rely on. The Aldeans seem a lot less childlike. Like they have just invested their energy so much into their art and let the technology take care of everything that they have sort of forgotten. It's like they rejected science, but not because they 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 didn't believe in it. They did a reverse stem. Right. It's not because they didn't believe in it. It's just because it was boring. And so they were just like, we're going to do our art. And then nobody remembered how to use the technology. I know what we'll do. We'll make a sci-fi show. And then we'll let them write an episode where they say art is stupid. Kind of weird. But it also makes complete sense. But I don't actually think that's what the episode is trying to say because there's a lot in this episode about allowing children to pursue what they want to pursue. What it's saying is that art is like candy. It's great, but if you have too much, it'll rot your teeth. But you still have to learn your calculus as the parent tells his child at the end of the episode. Which, of course, is likened to vegetables in this particular metaphor that we're working with. Right, yeah. Which is unfortunate. Anyway, I just I was wondering what you thought about this setup of basically the antagonists of the series are living in the ruins of their ancestors. It's a place we're going to get to visit in a few years. Yeah, I mean that that is kind of depressing, but well, I think I was it- listening okay, so I was listening to NPR the other day and they're talking about they're called I want to say it's refuge cities like uh Duluth Cities that have made commitments to their infrastructure. Yes. Because very few places here, allegedly Europe's done better, but I don't know. But very few cities here have done any kind of work to bringing infrastructure up to the needs for today, let alone tomorrow. But the idea is is that places really around the Great Lakes area, all the way up through Buffalo and places like that, are going to be where everybody has to go. And you can make a choice. You can choose to be ready for it or uh, choose to pretend it's never going to happen, which we know that the choice has been made to pretend it's not going to happen. Although, in theory, the good thing about doing the wrong thing is you can decide to do the right thing at any point. I'm not saying they will. But as we're talking about a state being completely torn apart by the fourth strongest hurricane to ever land in the U.S. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like a discussion we need to have because we're going to end up living in ruins, just like the folks in this episode, unless we do something about it. And that's the whole point, right? They haven't done anything about it. And their solution is to take other people's kids. What gets me about that? This is analogous in a very new Manifest Destiny sort of thing. When when places become uninhabitable, are we going to have a new phase of colonization and, and aggression? We, and by we, I didn't do it, but people did, had this history of seeing better land and taking it from the people who were there first. Well, what's going to stop it from happening again? The thing that gets me about this is doesn't seem like they understand it's wrong. It's not, not at all. It Well, I mean, it could be. It could be. They could be saying that it's wrong, but they are so convinced they have to do it that they've managed to like push that out of their heads. Again, I think that's a... I'm perhaps giving colonizers way too much credit, but 
I bet a lot of them thought just that. But, you know, so it's possible that they knew it was wrong and, and, and just couldn't. Just couldn't. Too much cognitive dissonance. Put it away. It's for the right reasons. Wrong thing for the right reasons. We'll take an L, but we won't be dead. That's the best version of this story. Everything else is not only do you not know technology, you don't know morality and ethics. And if you don't know morality and ethics, what aesthetic value can your art have? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And actually, for me, this reminded me more. The reason I like this episode more than I like For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. We talked about that in a prior episode of Sam Watches Star Trek is that in that episode, we talked a lot about how the ancestors of those people really set them up for failure, right? They didn't, it wasn't their fault that they didn't know any of these yeah, things. That's not what happens here. But here, yeah. yeah, here, these people are implicated in what they do, right? Like, sure, their ancestors could have also set them up for failure by neglecting to teach them infrastructure and STEM, but they're actively choosing not to be curious about their own technology not to be curious about why suddenly they stopped having children, right? They're, they just they see getting more children as a quick fix that will not disrupt their comfortable way of life. And to me, that has a lot of modern parallels to what we're going through right now as a country. The idea that like, I want my life to stay exactly the same as it ever was. I really want things to go back to normal. And I am not willing to change my life in any way, I'm I'm more willing to throw people under the bus and to let them get sick and let them die, or like you said, new colonization tactics, than change my life even a little bit. The thing that really bothers me about that is the whole thing about personal freedom mm-hmm. that happens right now. My freedoms. Yeah, but we live in a society, let's just say that now, and Public health is predicated on the fact that we don't do that. That sometimes you have to, like, you have to wear shoes when you go into a restaurant for reasons, I assume. We can make it to where you cannot have more than X amount of alcohol when you drive. Or that you have to wear a seatbelt, but you can't pick up your cell phone. Those are all things that are public health. And actually, there are a lot of people who hate all the stuff that involves a car. For some reason, we all seem to be okay with the shoe thing. Don't know why, but I'm not going to question it. <laughs> but the point is, in order for society to work, you have to actually behave like a society instead of the opposite, which is individuals just being individuals. But all the people who are actually saying, my freedoms are participating in a society because they expect other people to make sacrifices for them, which is one half of the public health equation. The other half being the individuals who are shouting that have to do it too. And that is the, it's the same imbalance in this episode. We have to sacrifice. You have to give us your children. You can make more is something they said. Yes, that is what they say. Well, and they're asking the children to make a sacrifice, too. Well, right. But but the point is their sacrifice won't be bad, which, by the way, ties in. Like, if you don't think that airborne viruses are real or that the virus, virus isn't bad, if those people convince you to not wear a mask, they think they're doing the right thing, just like the Aldean people. We get presented. What's really interesting 
about this discussion is that we're living in a moment where it is some reason not clear that it's bad to do the things we're talking about. Like it's really happening. People don't know, don't care, actively want mask wearers to die. Don't know why. I don't understand that because I'm not on that side of the issue, right? I'm on the side of we can be excellent to each other or at the very least halfway decent. We can wear shoes and a mask in this episode of television because filmmakers are allowed to show you a story in such a way that what they think is expressed. We are not being presented with a both sides dilemma. These people are wrong. It's sad what happened to them. And art's really cool. But there is no point in this episode we're supposed to think this is okay. None whatsoever. That's the difference. Because we identify with Picard. God help us. We don't want Wesley to be left behind. If And the great thing about and Beth. that is... Yeah, like but, Bev is the mom, right? Yeah. This is where she gets to really play up that maternal I don't, role. You see, I don't care about that. That does nothing for me. The fact that I know that Wesley is like a, a traveler or yes. whatever, that tells us he's important. But Picard's against it, and we like Picard, so we must be against it too. That's how you get moral clarity in a show like this. So what I'm saying is Patrick Stewart needs to fix all this <laughs> right now. I mean... It. Hey, call your friend Ian, not the hurricane, the wizard. <laughs> Get on it. Call your friend Magneto. He can see everything. <laughs> Speaking about the children in this episode, because there are a lot of children in this episode, I found it really interesting. And we had this conversation while the episode was happening about these people, the Aldeans, it's like they act as if these children do not have any agency. Like their fight and their explanations are all for Picard. They're all for the parents on the Enterprise. To the children, it's just, they just say, oh, this is just the way it is now. And there's no sense that they think that these children have anything to say about their situation. They think the children will just accept it eventually that they'll be happy. Like they expect the children to just get over what is actually, as we know, both then and now, but especially now, since we've seen it at the border, the separation of parents and children is extremely traumatic. And they're just expecting these children to just be like little automaton machines. That'll just be perform happiness for them. So I was reading a thing earlier today about a bathroom accommodation that was denied for a transgender girl. It's always the girls. And and the reason for that is very specific and very clear. But it was stated in this particular case, well, what happens two, three years down the line? And, you know, which implies that the thing you're worried about won't happen now. It'll happen when they're older, which, and you know the thing we're worried about, right? But what that's doing is, I'm trying to remember exactly the, the it's a phantom a phantom older self. They are legislating based on the older version of this person, which is bad because that's not the person that's here right now. And and the Aldeans do the same thing. They say that they'll appreciate it when they get older. Maybe, but they're not older right now. What they're doing right now is, as you point out, like 
separation at the border. And so, the, you know, that's that's one of the answers to things is that children are children. They aren't adolescents. They aren't adults. And you should treat them that way. We talk about my my family used to joke about how my dad being the firstborn and, you know, his dad you know, being in the military like you had to be the one to to raise the younger kids. Right. And so the story began, he was born an adult. Well, no, he wasn't. You made him into that, you know? And, and so when you deny that, problems happen. It's even worse when you deny it, except when it's convenient. Right. That's worse. The mythical child that uh, Edelman talks about, like mm-hmm. they're legislating for phantom adulthood unless it's convenient to refer to them as children because yes. they're innocent and we can harm well, them. Well, and- yeah, but in addition to that, they're children who don't know what they're talking about, except when I need them to know what they're talking about. And then all of a sudden, for this this little five-minute window here, unless they say what I don't want them to say, they're very adult. And that's what how they kind of appeal to Wesley, specifically. Like, you're the oldest one. You're the you're one with the-, the stupid rainbow shirt. You're in charge. <laughs> You're the you're the one that they all look up to. You know, you have to make it's up to you to make this transition better for them. I do want to point out that in this episode, the children, one of the children is the daughter of makeup supervisor Michael Westmore, but also Jeremy and Amy Wheaton, who are the younger siblings of Will Wheaton, also played some of the children here. I do think it's interesting that Wesley is so much older than the rest of the children. And they just like put him in the room with a custodian and go, you'll figure it out. Wesley was born and everybody thought it it was like, nope, children are a mistake. (laughs) And so they waited for another few years to whatever was in the water to work its way through. But it's interesting that they just shove him in a room with the custodian and go, you'll, you'll learn this. You'll figure out how to, to, to keep it going. We certainly didn't, but you'll figure it out. And I don't think they were wrong about that. Well, yeah, obviously, but like it, it does put into stark relief the way that they see the children as saving their society even though they because they they won't do it themselves but they see the children as a way of doing it right although i will point out we've been making a lot of similarities in comparison between the aldeans and people today i will say the aldeans actually are serious about educating their children that is true that's not only do they think children are the future but unlike the people who think the children of the future here, they actually invest in them. What did you think about the family structure where pe- like children are put with people who are proficient in certain things and so they can learn those things by living with these like, right. they're family units, but they're not like well, blood that's, family. That's it's like just, a pr- it's like almost like an apprenticeship. It is. That's, that's yeah. what it is. It's like sleepaway camp and apprenticeship at the same time. I mean, I don't think it's a bad idea. Well, and I think it's interesting that they like studied the children. I mean, it's creepy that they studied the children beforehand, but if they had their own children, which the end of this episode implies that they may eventually start having their own children, do you think that watching a child as they grow, talking to that child, like, and saying like, you're, you've got a gift for music. Like, let's, let's, let's let you hang out with this older musician. Right. So the particular utopia that this is based on is the utopia that is most commonly accepted to be the one that is closest possible to something that could actually work. It is, of course, socialist because I've said this like twice in conversation in the last couple of weeks. (laughs) It'd have to be. Right. But 
So the way that this works is when a child is born, they get to be a child, but you will start to see the things that they are probably more apt than anything else to do. And as they go into adolescence, they learn how to do it, and they work for a set number of years, 15, 20, or when you hit whatever age, right? And and so you can retire after that. So, you know, like training somebody for your job before your two weeks are up, this is basically, it's a cycle. But the idea is, is that you don't have to work your whole life. You only, in fact, have to work a, a fraction of your life because you have this apprenticeship situation going. It's not the adversarial one that we know from history. It's a very friendly one where you, you're, you're cut out to do this job and I think you're going to enjoy it and you're going to do it for a decade or so. And then the last few years, you're going to train somebody else to do it. And we're just, as long as we keep having those kids, we'll be fine. And I think that's ultimately why this episode is not an anti-art episode because one of the children, I can't remember which one, actually yeah. comes back and says to his father, who right. had been scolding him about calculus. I don't want to do calculus. Right. He'd been scolding him about calculus at the beginning. And he says, like, I think I want to be a sculptor. And and his father says, you can be anything you want. Because, of course, the Federation is also supposed to be a utopia. Well, and but, but remember, once again, going back to the idea of without ethics, without morality, you have no art. And And by the way... Something else I heard this week was the discussion about, you know, how we should litigate masters who are dead and like Picasso. We haven't canceled Picasso. And and off the top of my head, I don't even know why we should, although apparently we should. I don't know. But the point is, it doesn't have to be good ethics or morality. Right. But the whole point is, if you're putting yourself over as somebody who is amoral and and doesn't have any sense of ethics well you're not gonna the art doesn't matter like you might be technically proficient but it'll be soulless which by the way feeds into your whole android thing i what you just said is also shown to us by the fact that that child when he does make a sculpture it's a dolphin right it's something that's not from their world right and they even say like all the fish died a long time ago and like i think that that's supposed to be metaphorically be like this child has more to say in his art than they do. Right. This is obviously another domestic story. I just wanted to point that out because this is one that was not possible on TOS, right? And there, there have been episodes of TOS where there are children and the children shall lead. It seems like an apt comparison. You remember that one with the creepy kids? Yes. I, yeah. I will point out the thing about the domestic episodes is we get treasures like Worf talking about the saucer people. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I enjoyed that. They made it very clear at the beginning of this season that this was this was a different enterprise and this enterprise had children on it. This isn't your uncle Kirk's enterprise. <laughs> but like the idea that like Picard is very uncomfortable around children, but he's trying to figure out how to captain a ship that has children on board. And so this puts Picard in this episode in the really interesting position of having to advocate for parents and children, despite the fact that children make him very uncomfortable. And we see that when the little girl, when he walks in and the little girl's like, pick me up. Isn't it something that, that you can act in the best interest of someone you don't like or agree with? Isn't that weird that you can do that? You can be like, empathy. Like, I don't like you, but. 
because you're a living, functioning human, I'm not going to take my dislike out on you. I mean, and Weird. when she comes up to thank him on the bridge and gives him the flower, like he takes it very gracefully, even though he's clearly like two seconds away from freaking the fuck out. Like he knows that she needs it, even though it makes him very uncomfortable. Right. What did you think about the ending of the episode when Beverly reveals that the reason they can't have children is because the shield that they've been using on their planet from technology they don't understand anymore has been destroying their ozone layer, which feels like she even says this was a problem Earth had at the end of the 20th century. This is very much a call out of environmental factors, right? Which have obviously only gotten worse now. But it's this idea of... Like, they, they basically have radiation poisoning. As, as somebody who was exposed in utero to whatever happened at Three Mile Island. <laughs> I forgot about that. Let me actually back up. As, as somebody who was born unto a nuclear engineer, you get what you get, right? I mean, the, the thing about it is, you know, um, oh, gosh, I, this is going to reveal my ignorance. I believe it's nuclear fusion that would actually be the game changer. I know we do fission now, but I'm not a scientist. <laughs> Come on. Anyway, the point is that the, these things, it's kind of important to do them right and to do them well. And uh, yeah, it's a dig. It's definitely a dig. The ozone layer thing is the headline, but I'm actually way more interested in the radiation poisoning element of it because it's only going to be... Well, I think it's already started. I think the drawdown of nuclear power in America has either started by this point or is going to start very quickly. It was right at the end of the 80s when the the FDR alphabet soup program that my dad worked for decided not to do nuclear. Now, they've changed their mind on that, but it was coming if it wasn't already there by the time this episode aired. And you can have clean energy got to do it right. They have not invested anything in learning not only their own technology, but how to live within their environment. Right. Yeah. But I yeah. Mean, there's, there's clearly a lot to say in this episode. Clearly a lot of parallels to draw. I don't know how much has been cut out at this point, but we talked for quite a long time about this. It was a good episode. There are two other things I wanted to mention, though, two casting choices. So Brenda Strong plays Rochella, who is the last child that had been born to them, yeah. but who's an adult. Very, right. very children of men. Oh, yeah. In this situation. Uh, another. I didn't like it. I didn't like it. We're <laughs> about to rewatch it. Yeah. Actually, when this episode comes out, are we going to like rewatch it in two days? Yeah, I think we're actually about to. Yeah. To do it. I was going to tell you. Oh, this no, is... we're going to watch it this weekend. Well, well, we watched it again and I still don't like it. Brenda Strong is Lillian Luther on Supergirl. Nice. So that's somebody that we should recognize. She's, I mean, she's been in a lot of television yeah. and a lot of movies. See that. But that was somebody that I thought uh, you would appreciate me pointing out. The person who I think you'll appreciate me more pointing out, because as I was watching this, I was like, I know that guy. I know that guy. Where do I know that guy from? His name is Jerry Harden. Where do I know this guy from? And I thought I was going crazy. Where do you know this guy from? He's Deep Throat from the first season of X-Files. Oh. Yet another X-Files person. You're welcome. Slight spoiler for this character's arc on X-Files. You might want to skip 30 seconds if you're committed to being spoiler-free on X-Files. But when he died, I was so sad. You I almost were, cried. You were really sad. And then we got repl- then we got our second 
deep throat. I'm not as emotionally attached. I well, was so emotionally attached. He's to like, him. don't get emotionally attached. I don't want to die. Yeah, I. Yeah. Anyway, I just I thought that was another fun X Files. He also appears in another very well received, very critically acclaimed episode of the Next Generation Times Arrow. Not as this character, as a different character. All right, that so. means he's going to be the Doctor soon, right? <laughs> It's funny that you connected When the Bow Breaks with Colonization, because I think Home Soil, which is the next episode we're going to talk about, is even more connected to colonization, more directly connected with colonization. Colonization, by the way, is the title of the Red Hot Chili Peppers album. (laughs) Jesus Christ. This is no longer a family-friendly podcast. You're going to hear a lot more of our swearing. So, surprise! So Home Soil is the 18th episode of the first season. So it's directly the next episode. So it's going to be interesting to compare the two. It aired first on February 22nd, 1988. It was developed by a handful of people, Robert Sabaroff, Carl Gers, and Ralph Sanchez, while Sabaroff produced the teleplay. It is also one of five episodes of the series directed by Corey Allen, who is Buzz Gunderson from Rebel Without a Cause. I did not know he became a director. Cool. The Enterprise checks in with a terraforming project on Valera 3. The terraforming team acts strangely resistant to the crew's arrival, but ultimately lets them beam down to see the progress. While there, a murder occurs, and it's up to Picard and Data to solve the case. So, some of you will know what I'm talking about. I know you don't. Rockstar, the the game company, in between promising a new Grand Theft Auto and delivering it, they came out with a game called L.A. Noir. And, and so this was a detective game. And it was the thing that was revolutionary about it was not, it had a branching storyline. It had really good graphics. But it was your chance to be a detective. And it wasn't just listening to what people say and making choices, which is very Mass Effect-y, right? That's fine. But they, they did like the dots on the faces and like used, you know, like their real facial tics and things. So you had, you know, what they said, you had tone, you had the look on their faces, and it was supposed to be this really dynamic detecting thing. It wasn't. It wasn't. I was about to say, the game you just described sounds fascinating. Why haven't I played it yet? It, it's not very good. It's very unsatisfying. But, but that, I mean, that's, it. I thought about that when I saw this. Oh, we're supposed to see who's lying, and this guy is very suspicious, now, in L.A. Noir, that might mean that he is indeed suspicious, or it might mean he just sounds that way. I don't know. This will begin a long trend of Picard and Data doing detective stuff together. Right. So it's kind of this murder mystery. We actually see the murder at the beginning. A, a man from the terraforming team goes into a room. He is shot to death by his own laser. Data then later tries to replay the scene and almost gets killed by the same laser. Yep. In fact, uh, what did you think about Data's action sequence where he's like dodging this thing with his android speed? You couldn't even say action scene without like clear quotes around I mean, it. this is you Star Trek. Come on. Say it. We are definitely not to the whiz-bang Star Trek phase. <laughs> hey, did you hear that got taken off the release schedule? I did. Yeah. That makes me sad. Ugh. But I did like Jordy running to his rescue because Jordy's his best friend. Best friend show. That's right. 
this very quickly though becomes something else. Like it starts out as like yeah, detective that, fiction. That was the thing. Seeing it shift was interesting. Yeah, but then it shifts into something very different because they discover that despite the fact that Federation terraforming teams are not supposed to terraform planets with life forms on them because this goes back to Wrath of Khan, right? You can use that type of technology as a weapon. That's the whole point of the Genesis program, right? In the films in Wrath of Khan. Obviously, there are rules about this, probably because of what happened with Genesis. And this team had been assured that there wasn't life form right. life on this planet, but the Enterprise discovered that there is life on this planet. It's just not organic life. So there's a, um, in season three of For All Mankind, which I have seen all of now, this is, this is very mild spoiler. I'll say it to avoid any more detail. But in the third season, there is a debate about the place that they go in season three about whether or not there is life on it. And the life we're talking about is very similar to the life from this episode, not humanoid, very small. And, you know, the the question in For All Mankind is how bad do you want to find out if there's really this kind of life or not? Because if you find out there is, kind of can't do anything. And that's the issue here. The question is, do you think the guy in charge of the terraforming really believes that? Is he just saying it, knowing he doesn't have to act on it because they've already, quote unquote, proven that there's no life on it? Or, you know, is he, does he know and is doing it? You know, that becomes the the thrust of the episode. But yeah, it's interesting. As I said, I think I said it during the Hugo episode, that there's been a lot of science fiction lately, and this is not lately. But there's been a lot of science fiction lately that really talks about the idea. It's not that we care about intelligent life. We care about intelligent life that looks like us. And boy, that tracks. First of all, I I just wanted to say really quickly, this reminded me of the episode Devil in the Dark from the original series. Do you remember that episode where they go down into the mine because all the miners are being killed and they find the giant silicone based life form and... It looks like pizza based life and (laughs) another X-Files reference and Spock has to. Yeah. And and what is it that Bones says? I'm a I'm a because they're like, fix it. And Bones is like, I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, this just reminded me of that, like encountering a non-organic, like what if life didn't have to be organic? But I'm interested in your answer to the question. Did the director, Kurt Mandy, know because he acts really suspicious and at the end, he finally admits that he knew that something was not right, but yeah. he swears that he didn't know that it was life. Mm-hmm. But was it because he didn't want to know? Like, what was your thoughts about this particular character? I think about my high school history teacher who used to, you know, say that that lies right up there with the checks in the mail and I'll love you in the morning. Sure. I mean, it's you can't know is the thing. Right. I mean, he, it seems to be, so this is obviously a metaphor for colonization. Mm-hmm. It very much is. And that becomes even more apparent when the life form starts to communicate with them. I also finished the most current season of Yellowstone. Yeah. Recently, right? You know, and, and you could make an argument that what happened out West was a version of terraforming. Mm-hmm. It really was. I mean, like the, the buffalo. Yeah, right. I mean, the, that the, is a, the think, white people change the environment to suit them. Yes. Or 
which is well, not well, what the well, indigenous people were doing. Well, right. The point in the the point on Yellowstone was the terraforming was to make it not how you know what the indigenous people needed to survive. You know, by taking right. away this source of survival for them. So it's like a weird reverse terraforming. Terraforming is an interesting concept that has had a long history in sci-fi. I mean, this goes back to probably some of the first sci-fi novels in the 20th century. This idea that if we go to another world, we're probably going to it's going to be different from ours and we're going to have to change it. So it's habitable. And it's very much part of this. But it's connected to that manifest destiny idea that we can go somewhere else and we can live on the frontier and we can make it work. Isn't it funny, though, talking about terraforming in this moment? When we are getting our asses handed to us by, by a the hurricane. environment, yeah, right. Like we cannot. No, we are so not in charge of the environment. The idea of terraforming is silly. Well, it's funny because actually, when you said that, I thought about Godzilla. Like, because yeah. that's the point of the Godzilla films is that no, we are not in control. Well, and and I mean the thing about it is, is you know, you talk about that bastion of manifest destiny, libertarian. We can do it all ourselves, Louisa May Alcott. That family was like one one chaos theory butterfly flap on the other <laughs> world away from just getting destroyed every day, right? I mean, the Donner Party thought they were fine till it got a little too cold. We constantly underestimate yeah. nature and its ability to kill us. It, it's, it's you know it's, it's better to be lucky than it is to be good. That's just the bottom line. Yeah. The Romantics had it right. Nature is a terrifying force. Yeah, that's not. On our side. That's why I think the best way to teach romanticism is surfers. Ooh. Awesome. I like that. Awesome doesn't mean cool. Awesome means cool. That could kill me. I'm going to go surf on it. That's excellent. It, it's it's true, though. I, if I teach romantics again. It doesn't. I don't know that if it works very well, but it really is the best way to explain it. I like that. And yeah. they live with it instead of against it. You have to ride the wave. Yeah, you have to ride the wave. Yeah, no, I, I really like that. One of the things about listening to Pearl Jam for decades is <laughs> you think about surfing metaphors a lot because you gotta. Yep, I totally get that. So yeah, the the whole point of this is that this life form is essentially fighting back because the terraformers are changing the water system in this planet. And so they are they're essentially draining this like layer of water that exists be- right below the surface of the sand. And that's where these creatures live. Like, that is their environment. They cannot live without it because, as we find out, they're like single-celled organisms that use that water as, like, ways of connecting with each other. So they form, like, a big brain, basically. They are basically fighting for their lives. Like, and they say to Picard, we tried to talk to you. We tried to tell you, and you wouldn't stop. So now, you know, we're... War. war. Yeah. Here's, Here's my question. Why are we terraforming? So the Federation, this comes up in uh, the original series a few times, too. The Federation does terraform, quote-unquote, lifeless worlds in order to have more colonies. Why? I don't know. People? Why? Strategic value? I, I mean, this is... I mean, I'm not I, advocating... I, I see a, your uh, point. I'm not advocating a, the China child policy, right. but, like, why? No, I see your point. It, it's a... Because the story has to happen. I know. I, yeah, it's just... the In TOS, it is, we are told that a lot of worlds have been terraformed for humans. Uh, and I understand that, you know, but, but here's the thing, right? You talk about moving to another country because this country wants to kill you. All right. That makes sense. 
Not the part where the people in the country want to kill you, but the fact that you would want to leave. I get that. What I don't get is in a utopia, that's not necessary. The other thing might be that Earth often sees in this type of in this type of universe colonization and not colonization like killing other cultures, but like moving people into colonies off world right. as being a way of dealing with population because like human humanity's population has exploded, right? Like those well, people could not utopia, all. Yeah. That wouldn't be happening. Well, the thing is, if you think about the odds of a planet like ours existing, that's friendly mm-hmm. to human life. That's very low. And so despite what Star Trek sometimes tells us for the purposes of well, storytelling. And that's why Star Trek 4 exists. Because right. we know that conservation is important. You know, I think that we think about overpopulation as the result of extending life expectancy, which we took care of that in the last two years. So we're good now. So you think, okay, we move closer to a utopian society. We're going to have more bodies. That's not true. It might be true in the short term, but... In the long term, a society that is moving toward utopian is not going to do things that actively make it harder to survive. I mean, no, it makes sense it's to me. Just, I'm just I saying mean, this is a sci-fi thing. This is a I trope know, of... I know. This is a staple of the genre. It just, I, I know it. It bothers me. No, I, I understand. I mean, me. we should always question staples of genres. Why are they there? I mean, but... And, in, in, you know... As a metaphor for colonialism, sure, I'm fine with that because we do need to talk about that. We need to keep talking about it until we don't do it anymore. And once we don't do it anymore, we'll never be in danger of actually terraforming. Right. Because we'll learn our lesson. Because we will know. It is interesting that this is the first time on The Next Generation that I've heard the Prime Directive invoked. Picard actually does invoke it in the, like as soon as they confirm that life is on this planet, he calls Ma- Kurt Mandy into his office and says, Prime Directive, you can, know this. Can you just imagine the crew outside going, ooh. Well, even Will is like, you're a little harsh on him, were you? <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think he was. Like, I think Picard is in the right. If you suspect that you are killing a form of life, but you choose to ignore it or you choose to not know because it's convenient for you to not know, you deserve to be yelled at by Picard at the very least. Well, if you broke the first law, wouldn't you be disassembled? Prime directive, first law, what's the difference? Whatever. Just depends on whether you're fleshy or mechanical. The crystalline entity, as it is as it is called, calls humans ugly packs of water. Mom <laughs> <That was such> a- <laughs> um, is an ugly bag of water. <laughs> Picard's like, is it talking about us? And Data's like, I mean, you are mostly water. True. You can get mad about it. <laughs> what did you think about Picard's negotiation with them and how they basically say, like, he does kind of, because they're in danger of destroying the ship, he does have to, like, threaten them he, a little he bit. He puts his angry dad face on right. and goes to work. But yeah. when they when they negotiate at the end and he says, like, the Federation wants to help you, like, we, you know, we actively, you know, this has been a misunderstanding. We actively, you know, encourage new life. We want to negotiate yeah. with life. We want to learn from you and you from us. The crystalline entities say, nope, no thanks. We'll see you in 300 years. So, yeah, no, that was great. So here's the thing. Picard's not going to be my favorite captain. Right. I know he won't be. I'm going to run out of options. I mean, right now, Pike's Peak is my favorite. Yeah. Right, <laughs> of course. Which is sad, knowing what happens to him. Picard's not going to be my favorite captain. Kirk isn't either. 
But the thing about Kirk is you know what you're going to get with him. I don't like the way, and we've seen it a couple times now, I do not like the way that the writers and, and Patrick Stewart have it to where Picard can just on a dime change his mood. I don't like that. The meanness that he has. You know he's going to back down. You know he's not trying to annihilate these people. You know he doesn't want them to die. You know he won't violate the Prime Directive. But the look on his face and the tone of his voice say something completely different. Well, don't you think think that's necessary for a captain defending his ship, which, as we know, has families and children on it? I don't think so. Okay, I just... I mean, it's an approach. I'm not faulting it. I'm not saying that's not a person you want to have in charge. It is a person you want to have in charge, but it's not the guy I want. I mean, maybe it's the guy I want protecting me, but it's not the guy I want to have a beer with. Oh, I totally get that. I do. I mean, first of all, you totally... Okay. Having a beer with somebody, and I cannot believe I'm saying this like 20-something years later, is not the measure of who you should elect for president. But I would definitely hang out with Kirk. I would. I would. I want to have a beer with that guy. Kirk would be fun. Yeah. Oh, my God. I want to be that guy's friend. I want to take him back to actual New Orleans. Kirk would be a great person to go to New Orleans with. Yes, it would. Absolutely. I mean, you could basically turn your filter off, and if you you piss somebody off and they start a fight with you, he'll take care of it. The other thing I wanted to point out before I moved on to some of the little fiddly bits of the episode. The fiddly bits. The fiddly bits. And now the fiddly bits with Tessa. One of the big things in this episode, because this life form looks so different from what they, it looks so different from the definition, the very definition that they have for life. In fact, they talk about that definition a lot. Like life has to be organic. It has to, what is it? Beverly says it has to reproduce. It has to, it has to exchange. Like it has to, Oh, I don't remember the whole thing, but it was like, it has to reproduce. And that was a big one. It can't be a machine. Damn it. Yeah. It has to, um, it has to interact with its environment in certain ways. It has to show, you know, like these are like the, the qualifications for life. They have this conversation in front of Data, who is not organic. And I can't decide if that's just they forgot that he's not organic because he just Oh, like, it's okay when you do it. Right. He just looks so much like them. But he is he is trying. And I think I don't think the writers meant for this to happen. I'm not giving them credit for this. But Brent Spiner's performance here is very interesting because you can tell that he's trying to understand what they're saying. But you can also tell the subtle ways in which he's trying to question what they're saying. Because they're right. like, he's like, does all life has to be organic? Like, you know, like he he's the way he's trying to insert himself into this conversation is interesting because he's not directly saying, well, am I not life? But he is trying to push them in their concept conception of what life is. And to be fair, data might be biomechanical. I, well, I, I don't know. Okay, here's the thing. I know the conversation we're supposed to be having is, is data not alive? Right. I think that's the wrong question. I think that's what's being brought up in this scene. Absolutely. But it's the wrong question. What's the right question? It doesn't matter if Data's alive or not. Is he your friend? Ah, I see. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he... I mean, that's the whole thing about do androids dream of electric sheep. It doesn't really matter. Right. It shouldn't matter. That's just prejudice. The bottom line is... Is this somebody I can work with? Is this somebody who's competent in their job? Is this somebody I trust? Is it he's embodied? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if that body is 
it's electrical just like we are, but that might be where the, the similarity stop. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be. But yeah, it's interesting that they're going through this list of qualifications and data doesn't meet some of them. Like he can't reproduce. Well, but that's the point. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't, why would that matter? Well, no, I agree with you. And actually, I think that's a really shitty definition on life because there are plenty of humans who can't reproduce. But like, sure. and I know people are going to say, well, that's not okay. But there are Still. plenty of people who I would much less rather hang around with than data. Than data. Yeah. It's just, it's an interesting scene because they seem so oblivious to what they're doing, mm -hmm. but data clearly isn't, but he's not challenging them like we saw him challenge Picard in data lore about the pronouns. Right. So one of the few comments you made about this episode while it was going is why is Wesley in the meta lab? You were just like, why is he here? And I was I like, mean, he just hangs out. Listen, why? I don't get it. Wesley is now allowed in all parts of the ship. He's there almost Why during all of the conversation. He's a main character. He's <laughs> a series regular. I get it. But why? It is interesting to see how Picard, especially, his attitude has changed towards Wesley. And it's not because he thinks Wesley is. It's like he learned that he was going to keep going up against Wesley. And so he had to learn how to work with yeah. Wesley instead of against him. But he seems much more relaxed to have Wesley part of almost every conversation, even the really like, do you think it's because Wesley's proved himself or do you think Picard has learned how to manage him better? Don't you figure it's the same reason why the Avengers put up with Thor? He is a god. What are you going to do? Say no? <laughs> That's fair. So maybe I mean, it's the Traveler revelation. I think so. I it, mean, to me, that makes sense. To me, that explains everything. Is it what they meant to do in the series? I don't know if they gave it that much thought, but it is the only thing that makes sense. And if I were Wesley... I would at some point begin to question this. Maybe it's because I question every positive interaction I have with a person. Maybe other people don't do that. Yeah, it would be interesting for him to ask about that or try to have a dialogue with Picard about it. Why am I cool now? Am I cool? I can't be cool. They let me do the stuff, so I must be cool. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, right? and on and on, yeah. Every day. The last thing I wanted to bring up was that we get a little little Riker romance with Louisa Kim, who's one of the terraformers played by Elizabeth Lindsay. This is us leaning into the Will Riker is hot and he's supposed to be our Kirk insert and he should be sleeping with more women besides Deanna. I know this doesn't make noise. I know this isn't audio, but I... I will never, I'm going to shake my head now. I'm going to shake my head the next time it happens. I'm just going to shake gonna my shake head. You're going to shake your head a lot. I don't care. So, Stop trying to make Riker romance happen. Is this because you want him to be with Deanna or just because you don't care about I his romances? Care. I don't care. So I've had this conversation before. I'd be interested to know what our listeners think about the relationship between Deanna and Riker because... Yeah, it seems like this season is trying to tell us that they should be together, that they deeply love each other, and that obviously we know where their relationship goes in the future, but they both also seem really okay with each other dating other people. I mean, the other thing that you really have to understand is being a lifelong Star Wars fan, it was last week when sex was canonized, right? <laughs> I mean, nobody... <laughs> Nobody. This isn't Star Wars, okay? Star Trek beats well, Star Wars when I, it comes to sex. Oh, I know. I'm not saying it doesn't. What I am saying... Beats it up and takes is, its lunch money. Oh, I know. What I am saying is while I realize that Star Trek is a 
sexual being, <laughs> if you will, <laughs> that that's not, I'm not here for that. Fair. I'm not here for that. I mean, it's such, it's so tame anyway. It's just like this little flirtation. We don't, they don't kiss. It's nothing boring. happens. I just, yeah. And the other thing is you're going to have to work real hard to make me care about Riker. I thought you liked Riker. He's fine. I love Riker. Anyway. I know you do. I like how you were just going to end with, with me being mean about Riker, who is fine, by the way. I really wish I could have remembered another 80s television show for you. Knight Rider. Magnum <laughs> P.I. Oh, my God. Knight Rider and Magnum P.I., <laughs> both of which have been remade. There was a kick a while ago for remaking 80s yeah. shows. Like, they were going to remake Cagney and Lacey, but that got canceled. Yeah. So I don't So I don't want my They remade last... Quantum Leap. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I still can't remember which one it is. Cagney or Lacey is the mom on Burn Notice, right. by the way. America's, at one time, number one watched cable show that nobody knew anything about. So, by the way, I didn't want you to end the episode with me just saying Riker's fine, but I do want you to end the episode with me saying that you don't hassle the Hoth. Are you proud of yourself right now? Yep. Sam has the biggest smile on her face right now. She's so tickled with what she just did. All right, join us next week for our discussion of the episodes Heart of Glory and Symbiosis. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. And Sam on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. Until next time, live long and prosper. <laughs>